Our scripture this morning comes from Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, either way. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. So the woman, the beloved, is speaking. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. The king has brought me into his bedchambers. Her friends respond, saying, We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. The beloved says again, How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely. Daughters of Jerusalem, dark like tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? Her friends say, if you do not know most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. This is the word of God. Thanks, Macon, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning. Uh, glad that you could be with us. We'll just take a minute, pray together, and then look at this scripture as we continue in a series, Song of Solomon. Let's pray together. Father, we'd like to thank you that we can gather within these walls listening for your voice this morning. Thank you that in a world that seeks to conscript us and control us and use us, uh, we're called to a safe place of freedom and vulnerability in Christ. I pray that we would not uh, merely articulate those as words, but that we would be able to live into the reality of that, resting in your arms, receiving from you all that heals, all that brings joy, all that transforms. Uh, and so toward that end, this morning as we gather uh, to receive communion as well, in a few minutes we pray that all that happens here would be ministered by your Holy Spirit in order to prepare us to receive and worship at your table. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And welcome as we continue this series. This week looking really at the first chapter of uh, Song of Songs, and basically for the next eight weeks, eight chapters. So we go through this for eight weeks, looking at a chapter every week. And this week, uh, the kind of theme is learning to not settle for less than God's best. And so we're talking fundamentally at the outset about desire and what we desire out of our lives. I will begin by saying I'm reading a book right now entitled Flow, uh, a book about helping people live uh, into a life of creativity and productivity and purpose rather than simply allowing ourselves to be carried along by the waves of culture. And though it's not a Christian book, there's a quote in it that articulates so powerfully and profoundly uh, something that is central to the gospel. And I'll read it this way, using the word desire as a substitute for what the book uses, the word intention. Listen as I read. This is from the book Flow. Desires arise in our consciousness whenever a person is aware of wanting something. We want things. That's desire, right? Most people, however, adopt sensible desires, quote-unquote, desires such as living a long and healthy life, uh, getting married, having sex, being well-fed, being comfortable, or uh, we feed on the desires implanted by the social system. Be good, work hard, get an education, spend as much as possible, live up to other people's expectations, avoid rejection. But there are enough exceptions in every culture uh, to show that desires are actually quite flexible. Uh, individuals who depart from the norm, heroes, saints, sages, artists, poets, have different desires than the mainstream. Uh, 
Uh, and this is an invitation then for us this morning to examine our desires. Like, what do you want? What do you want from life? And, and in John chapter 10, verse 10, here's an opportunity from Jesus. Jesus says this, look, I've come that you might have, and then you know the answer, I've come that you might have life. And the word that Jesus uses there is articulating for us, I've come to fill you with the kind of life for which you were created, the life that God had in mind when he made you, when God made you. That life is available to you. And I've, I, Christ, have come that you might know that life. But for you to live that life, you must reframe your desires. And that's really a matter of repentance. We need to desire the right things. And so the point here would be not to simply run away from what the world tells us we should desire, but to run to something. In other words, Romans chapter 12 says it this way, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, but the renewing of our minds is not predicated simply on a rejection of the world. I don't want upward mobility, so I'm going to live in a van, right? I don't want marriage, I'm going to be single. I don't want a good education, so I'm going to be a bohemian who just, you know, wanders the desert or something like that. And, and, and now we're living on the base of no. And Jesus would say, regarding living on the base of no, no. Don't live on the base of no, live on the base of yes. In other words, here's Christ, pursue me. Make me the object of your desire, and that love relationship will make you fruitful. That's Song Solomon. Don't settle for what the world tells you you ought to be, but don't, in a reactionary way, run from what the world tells you ought to be. Rather, run to Christ, and then Christ will so shape you that you live into the life that God had for you when God created you. That's kind of where we're going in the <clears throat> Song of Solomon, and the major theme in chapter one is this danger of settling for what the world uh, wants you to be. We move in our lives, as we, you know, as we grow from youth to old age, we move from idealism to settling. Often, we move from idealism to settling. We start out with you know, great ideals when we're young, and then as we grow older, quote-unquote, realities settle in, right? And so we were gonna have the perfect marriage, and then we have a marriage. <laughs> we were gonna have, you know, we were gonna have you know, all this income, and then we have income. We were gonna make a huge difference in the world, and then uh, we feel like our goal is survival because illness came in, or betrayal came in, or infidelity came in, or sick children came in. And so we move in our lives from ideal to just getting by. And Song of Solomon challenges that by saying, no, listen, there is something that God has for you, and this is where we're going this morning as we look at chapter one. So the context of the book, if you'll recall, is a, is a love trial, as we've just seen. And up here is the king, and, and here's the woman, and over here is this other lover, right? This other lover represents Christ. This king represents the world, a source of power seeking to conscript us and draw us into servitude this way and use us but our calling is to resist being used here and instead pursue this relationship, the relationship with Christ. That's the fundamental thing that's going on in the entire book. And as we go through the book, we'll continually be flipping between two interpretations, sometimes viewing it as a literal love story and teaching us about intimacy in human relationships, other times viewing it as a picture of our call to choose Christ. So that's kind of the whole lay of the land. And this morning, act one is in chapter one. And what I want to do is look at three actions in the first act and then uh, consider what they mean. So here's the three actions. Uh, regarding the bride, in chapter one, the bride is waiting for this lover, and she, what we see is her desiring, her declaring, and her seeking. 
Desiring, declaring, seeking, and then we're going to unpack what it means. Now, I want to tell you this at the outset. Those of you who, are, who attend here regularly, you know that normally when I preach, I'll talk about, I'll, I'll name a verse a little bit, give a little bit of theology, and then I'll tell you a funny story or give some application, right? You know, theology, application, story. Theology, application, story. Not today. Okay? Today, it's all theology. The whole first half is theology. I'm, we're going to look at the story in depth. All the application is at the end. So if you're an application nerd and all you care about is the application, I'm going to ask you to please stay awake in the first half. Bear with me while I tell the story because you really need to hear the whole story before you look at application. Conversely, right, if you love story, when the story ends and I get to application, don't leave. Because the application is the whole point of the story, is so that you can be transformed. So that's how we're going to do it this morning. It's a little unusual, but uh, follow with me as we look at these three themes, desiring, uh, declaring, and seeking, beginning with desiring. So this is a fun one. It's really a Bible study together. Look at your Bible. If you don't have one, there's one probably in front of you in the pew, unless you're in the front row. And then, I'm sorry, you came late, you're in the front row. That's the way it works. <laughs> You'll be here early next time, right? Um, so Song of Songs is at the end of kind of the wisdom section, the middle of your Bible. And in chapter 1, I mean, the woman just speaks right out of the gate in verse uh, 2. Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, and this is what she says. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. And your name is purified oil. That's what we look at at the very beginning. So what we see here is she is declaring her desire for him. She declares her desire for him at the outset, A, that he's better than wine, B, that she's intoxicated by his smell, and C, that his name is purified oil. Now, all these things are significant, not only like taken at face value as a love relationship, and she's like, I would rather kiss you than drink wine, which is a great articulation of passion, but as well, these things represent things in the Bible. Wine and oil together in the Old Testament represent gladness. All through the Old Testament, they represent, they represent gladness. And wine and oil sides of the covenant. In a moment here, uh, when we receive at the Lord's table, uh, the cup, we're receiving, at least symbolically, we're receiving wine, right? And, and the wine is a sign of the covenant. It's a sign of Christ. And the oil, in, all through the Bible, matures as a sign ultimately to be a sign of the Holy Spirit. And so both signs of God's covenant relationship to us, what is God giving us in order that we might live the life for which we're created? He's giving us Christ. He's giving us the Holy Spirit. And so here, wine and oil is articulated in this, her love for him, and she says to him, his name is purified oil. What a, I mean, what a great name. Hi there, purified oil. <laughs> it's better than Richard, actually, as a name, because, because it means who, who you are, what you bring to me is gladness and, and comfort and healing. You bring me gladness, comfort, and healing. That's what she's saying. And then, verse 4 Pretty significant. This is what she says. Draw me after you. Let us run. Now, that's a literal reading. If you have various versions, it'll say different things. But literally, if you unpack this, this is what it says. Draw me after you. Let us run. So she's saying to him, uh, come and give me. And why? Uh, because the second half of verse 4, which reads this way again literally, the king has brought me into his chambers. Now, I don't normally uh, try and speak disparagingly of various translations of the Bible, though I have my opinions. But this morning, I will tell you, if you have an NIV Bible, this is translated wrong. In this, it's, it's still the Bible. Don't worry, you know. You don't have to go sell it or anything like that on eBay. But 
this verse literally reads, the king has brought me into his chambers. And the NIV says, uh, let the king bring me into his chambers. So it's an interpretive thing that uh, the NIV did where it's like, oh, she wants to be with the king. And I'm telling you, no, she doesn't want to be with the king because the way it's literally translated here is the king made me come into his chambers. Subtext, did I want to go into his chambers? No. Why? I'm a concubine. He's using me, right? So he's using me. So she's saying then to her, to her lover over here, take me away. I want to get out of here quickly. That's what's going on. So she's de- in all that, she's declaring desire, right? And then in verse 7, uh, she says, uh, where are you? Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture? Now he's a shepherd, right? Uh, and that's significant as we'll see in a moment. But where do you pasture? Where do you make uh, your flock lie down at noon? And the subtext, I want to come, I'll be with you. So she wants to know where he is. The implication, listen, the implication being, if she knows where he is, how radical is this? She will come to him. It's like she's going to ask him out on a date. Who does that? Right? And that's what's going on here. Because something's being articulated here that's super disruptive to conventional wisdom regarding uh, gender relationships and how men and women relate to each other. So all that's happening there under this rubric of desiring. Then, let's look at declaring. Because what she's declaring here, as she tells her story, verses 5 and 6, she's declaring both confidence and hardship. Look with me, verse 5. She says, "Um, I I am black yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. She's now with uh, other women in the harem, apparently, and she's articulating a little bit of her story. I'm black with loving. Don't stare at me because I'm swarthy. The sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I haven't taken care of my own vineyard. So let's just look at what this is here. She's declaring confidence and hardship. First, uh, uh, understand what's happened. Uh, she's been forced by her brothers to work outside, right? It says there, uh, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyard. So she's been forced to work outside. And because she's been forced to work outside, her, she's very tan, right? Her skin is exceptionally dark. And that sets her apart from the other women who, uh, if they're in this uh, harem, were, quote-unquote, uh, according to the standard of the day, beautiful, and had light, they were less tan. Do you see? They had lighter skin. So she has darker skin, and they had lighter skin, and, and she's saying, hey, even though I have dark skin, I'm beautiful. With me so far? Now, what's interesting here is it's totally different than today's culture, right? Which tells us something about standards of beauty. I mean, we live in a town where we have tanning booths so that you can pretend that you went to Hawaii, right? You're there, and you sit in there for a few minutes, and then you, you, know, you come out. People go, where'd you go? And you go, oh, you know, the U District at 45th and such and such. There's a booth there. Put my money down, came out, and now, you know, it's as if I went, you know. Why? Because in our culture, tan means you've got enough time to sit around in the sun and, and just chill, right? And by the way, in our culture, thin means you've got enough time to go to the gym and, and work out and thin is beautiful, not in this culture. In this culture, uh, if, if you were less tanned, 
right? And it put on a few pounds. That's the wealthy woman. And all the women are like, oh, for the day. I wish it were that way today, but it's not that way today, right? So there's other, the whole different cultural thing going on now where uh, beauty's redefined. Beauty's always defined in different ways. And so what's significant here is this. This woman says, I don't care how beauty's defined, even though I don't meet the standard definition of beauty, I am beautiful. This is hugely significant, as we'll see as we come into the story here, right? She's able to accept her beauty, celebrate her uh, beauty, uh, and enjoy her beauty. And then we have a hint about why her brothers forced her to work in the fields when we see verse 6. This is what she says. My brothers were angry with me, and they made me work in the field. Now, why would her brothers be angry with her? Well, uh, while we can't know for certain, the strong possibility is articulated at the end of verse 6, where she says this, I've not cared for my own vineyard, right? Now, what does that mean? Well, throughout the book, her, my vineyard, when she's speaking, when it says my vineyard, this is a word picture for that part of her body, which is her sexuality and her fruitfulness, right? So her vineyard is her place of fruitfulness. And you guys all know what that is. I don't have to tell you. You know exactly. So she's saying here, uh, look, I didn't care for my vineyard. So it's a metaphor for her sexuality. And when you put the pieces together, uh, what happens apparently is that she lost her virginity. This brought shame on the family. And as a result, she's been assigned to work in isolation because the family's like this. No, we don't want anyone knowing. Go work in a vineyard. So, so she brought shame on the family because she's been sexually violated in some way or, or, or used. And now, <clears throat> in a shame-honor culture, uh, her, quote-unquote, and it's, a, it's in quotes, I'll articulate in a minute, but her failure means she's going to bring shame on the culture, so they shun her. That's what's going on. Yeah, go work in the vineyard. We don't want to see you. We don't want to deal with you. And we don't want anyone to know because you're, you've brought shame you brought shame on the family. Uh, now, very important you see this, the shame is not necessarily self-induced. It, it may well be that she was used by another man or other men against her will. She could have been raped. And in that culture, she, hear this, she could be raped and still be shamed. And as I say that, I know what's going on in the minds of many, not just in that culture, but in this culture. Right? And so we still live in this time uh, where, uh, as in Mesopotamian cultures, women are often shamed uh, in the midst of, uh, of sexual assault. And in Mesopotamian culture, women were viewed as property and often blamed for their sexual assault because the sexual assault was viewed as costly, not to the woman, but costly because of the shame it brought on the family. And then they, and then they were excommunicated or shunned. Uh, and this still happens today in many cultures all around the world, as many of you know. And so what's so beautiful here for us is we see in the Song of Solomon seeds planted of an entirely different trajectory uh, for women that's empowering to women that is uh, fully blossomed in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, where the Apostle Paul says this, in Christ, in Christ, there is now no longer what? Slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. But all those dividing walls have been broken down in Christ, and those who were down have been empowered. Amen. Amen. I mean, this is the way life is supposed to be for women. A state of empowerment. Why? Because Christ is broken under the dividing wall. You're not property. You're not an inconvenience. When this happens, this is a tragedy to the woman. But in her case, this is so beautiful. Have I been violated? Yes. 
Have I maybe made some wrong choices? Yes. Am I stuck in the vineyard? Yes. Do I conform to the cultural standards of beauty? No. And yet, here's her declarative statement. I am what? Beautiful. I'm beautiful. I'm not my failure. I'm not my abuse. I'm not defined by, by domestic violence. I'm not defined by my addiction. I'm not defined by my past. I'm not defined by my weight, by my body mass index, by the color of my skin. I am beautiful, period. And if we could learn to live into that, all of us in the room, we would be people of hope in the world. She's overcome shame in a powerful way. Third thing that we see is seeking, right, in verse 7. Um, so she says here in verse 7 to the shepherd, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture? Where do you make the flock lie down at noon? Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flock of your companions? I want to come to you, right? So uh, this provides further evidence that this isn't Solomon because he's a shepherd. The one that she loves isn't the king. The one that she loves is a shepherd, you see? And she is unwilling to let herself be defined by her past or by injustice that have been done to her or by the mistakes that she made. Instead, she's resisting all of these downward pulls to be defined in a certain way and rather longing for her true love. And she wants to be where her true love is. That's her goal. She desires him, wants to run to him, wants to be with him, asks him where he is. And what's more, there are reasons for her longing, right? He stirs her in a way that even wine can't stir her. Now, now, what does that mean? Remember, if we go back to the top, your love is better than wine. Now, I won't have a, like a survey in here this morning of who drinks wine in the room, but my suspicion is some of you do. I'm not sure, but I think so. And, and, and so the, some of you who drink wine know this is a truth, right? After maybe two glasses of wine, uh, well, we can, let's take a little survey. I'm interested here now. I'm, in, I'm actually interested. <laughs> After two glasses of wine, how many find that the conversation gets a little more robust around the table? Does anybody find that to be true? Yeah, many of you do. You know, for some, whatever reason, you gotta, you've had some, you know, we come into social relationships and, you know, Eric comes and makes us talk to people and all that kind of thing, and it's very difficult. But uh, I promise you, with a couple of glasses of wine, that minute would go very differently, right? Everybody's happy and easygoing and it's all good. Uh, what happens here is... Uh, uh, the wine makes us willing to be vulnerable. And this is just a thing that we see as a reality, physiologically. The wine, we're more able to be vulnerable. Too much wine, and then you're too vulnerable, and you wake up the next morning and you say, what did I say? I can't believe I said that. However, uh, what she's saying here, when she, when she says, your love is better than wine, this is what she's saying. Look, I feel safe with you. I, in this relationship, I can be vulnerable. That's very powerful. How many can say that regarding your own marriage? Yeah, it's a significant thing. I mean, if, if a male in the room is struggling with pornography, can he tell his wife? If, if a woman in, in the room is struggling with her body image, can she tell her husband? Do you feel safe? Do you feel safe? This is what she's saying. I can be vulnerable. I can be open. Uh, his love makes her safe in vulnerability. His love brings her gladness. His love heals her like oil poured out. Therefore, what? I'll be with him. So, again, just to wrap this part up before we go to application, here she is. Here's, quote, unquote, the world, and here's this other one representing Christ. 
She, it's, and she understands that the world is using her. But hear me, this is very important. She doesn't just want to break away. Oh, no, no, no. The breaking away is only because what? She wants to go towards. She, like she has met the one who brings her joy, with whom she is safe, and the one who heals her. That's where she wants to be. So that's, that's the story, and she's basically declaring her love for him and asking him where she is. And she says, so, so in love with you am I uh, that uh, once I know your location, I'll run to you. Even though social convention prevents it, I will go to you, the woman seeking the man. <laughs> so what does this story mean for us uh, as we begin to look at application here today? Well, as I've shared... Uh, application throughout the book is always twofold, right? We're looking, at the, we're looking at the story through two lenses, one about intimacy between men and women, it's personal, and one that is for the church, about the, the church being the bride of Christ here, seeking Christ instead of the world in which we live. So we'll look at both of those things, personal and church application, and we see three, th- three kind of movements here f- for the woman. She moves from being used to being loved, She moves from shame and blame to beauty and confidence, and she moves from empty longing to doing the next thing. So three movements in her. First, she moves from being used to being loved. Look at at how how this plays out here. There's a personal sense uh, as as she uses some metaphors here that have a lot of uh, sexual overtones, right? To me, my darling, you're like my mare among chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your necks with strings of beads, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and and as, we, as we unfold this here, we'll see what happens. She's trying to show us here in this story that her sexual relationship with him is only working because of the context in which the sexual relationship exists. In other words, sex is not inherently destructive. Sex is not inherently life-giving. We live in a, in a culture where often the church, in its fear of the power of sexuality, has intimated that sex is largely destructive. We also live in a world uh, where, uh, because of the emptiness of the human soul, many people have articulated that sex is inherently life-giving. This text says, no, it's not inherently destructive. It's not inherently life-giving. Sexual pleasure to be life-giving is determined by the context, right? And so in her case, she articulates that her relationship with the king is one of being used, and therefore the sexuality would be destructive. Because look at verse 12. While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth fragrance. And here's what she's saying there. The perfume that is giving forth fragrance from her is nard in this text. And the perfume nard in the culture is an aphrodisiac. So here's what she's saying. Look, when the king is with me, the king is aroused by me. I'm a, in other words, what am I to the king? Source of arousal. Well, that could be pornography. <laughs> but it's not a relationship. Like just inherent arousal doesn't constitute relationship, right? So she's poetically saying here, the king was aroused by me, but I received nothing from him, right? And then she contrasts that to the relationship of mutuality with, with the shepherd over here, because look at verses 13 and 14. My beloved, that's this one over here, my beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh, which lies all night between my breasts, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyard of Engedi. And so she's saying here, when it comes to this relationship with my beloved, I don't feel used. In contrast to feeling used, I receive from him. He's laying on, on, on my breasts all night long, and uh, it's, a, it's a pure love relationship 
where I'm receiving, receiving, receiving from him. And this is, he makes me fruitful, as we see then down in uh, verse uh, 16, when she says this regarding her relationship with her lover, indeed, our couch is luxuriant. And the word luxuriant there, you could translate it this way, our couch is verdant, or our couch is fruitful, or you could say it this way, and particularly, almost literally, it's translated this way, our couch is green. And green being here a metaphor for what? Life-giving, right? And this is a metaphor with which all of us can identify in this particular moment, right? As, as we move from winter to spring around here, right now, green is a very, very, aren't we all glad to see the green? Like, rainiest season ever, whatever it was, 150 days in a row of utter darkness. I don't know how the weather people articulated it, but it's like, this was just, you know, disgusting and hard, and we all lived on caffeine forever, and then, you know, I'm driving down yesterday from the mountains where it was still winter, and still is, it was snowing yesterday morning up there, and as I'm driving down, I go from nothing on the trees to little teeny, teeny bits of pollen to little buds to, you know, full-on life, and my soul just gets happier and happier as I come down the mountain because it's like, yes, there is life after winter, right? And that's what this text is saying. Look, when I'm with him, this is life-giving to me. That's what it means. Our couch is luxuriant, right? So, so you see here, she's contrasting. When I'm with him, he uses me. But when I'm with you, I receive from you. Covenant relationship. And what she's saying here that's so significant, the context in which sexual expression is life-giving is the context of covenant love. Why? Because uh, covenant love, and we'll get into this as we go through the book, requires of us, as Pastor Tim Keller from New York says, covenant love requires of us radical self-donation. And what she's saying here in this particular piece of the text is this, you, my lover, the shepherd, you, my husband, you donate to me. I receive and receive and receive. And if you're in a healthy relationship, you should feel that you receive more than you give. And that's what's going on here. Now, all of us fail. Many of us have violated even the principle of sex and covenant relationship. But is there grace for the fallen? Absolutely. Is there a path to restoration and recovery? Yes. But I'll say it as I did last week. Never, never lower the standard. What is God's ideal? Covenant relationship. One for one for life. Radical self-donation. This is where love thrives. This is where sex is life-giving. And we will swim upstream against the culture that treats sex as nothing more than recreation by saying it over and over again, not because we're anti-sex, but because we want God uh, and God's way regarding covenant love to thrive. It's what, sets the, it's what should set the church apart from surrounding culture. So, so all that's personal application. And then there's application regarding us as the bride of Christ. Because, you see, we're the bride, and the king here in this story is the world. And 1 John 2, we saw last week, says what? Don't love the world. Why? Because the world will seek to use you and define you. In other words, the world will tell you, what does the world say to you? What messages do we hear? From the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep, over and over again, we are told, you are your looks. You are your education. You are your net worth. You are your bank account. You are the car you drive. You are the clothes you wear. You are your body mass index. You are your vocabulary. You are the neighborhood you live in. You are the house you own. You are the houses you own. You are your retirement security. And so the world is telling us what we are. And if we're like the woman in the story, we will say, no, I'm not. No, I am not defined by my looks. I'm not defined by my education, by my upward mobility, by my credit card 
limit, but by the money that I have in the bank, I am defined by this love relationship. That's who I am. And our invitation is to live into that with boldness and assurance, understanding that uh, she was uh, like used, and then her brothers judged her for being used, and she said, no, (laughs) though I'm used, though I'm quote-unquote damaged goods, though I'm judged, I am beautiful. Can you say it? I hope so. And what she's saying by saying I am beautiful is she is saying our beauty is not ever to be defined by cultural constrictions. Black is beautiful. White is beautiful. Brown is beautiful. Yellow is beautiful. Because we are in Christ. And yet, um, what we see is in a world seeking to conscript us, there's this shepherd who loves, heals, empowers, with whom we feel safe. And over time, through the power of his love, we learn to believe, we begin to believe, actually, that God delights in us. Does that make sense? As I, as I seek Christ, I, over years, I begin to believe, oh, do you know what? God actually doesn't tolerate me. God delights in me. God doesn't go, you know, you're really yucky, but I put Jesus in front of you, and now I, I love, you know, the fact that Jesus lives in you. No, 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 no. God, God delights in each one of us and says to each one of us, you are beautiful. And, and this is what uh, heals our lives. God's way leads to life. So then she moves from shame and blame to beauty and confidence, right? Uh, by way of personal application, the Jewish world was, like the rest of the world, patriarchal. Roman culture was patriarchal. The church has often also been patriarchal. There's been a cultural standard of beauty, uh, and if you didn't meet it, you were judged. There's been a kind of a behavior standard of beauty. If you didn't meet that, you were judged. And as she, without as we've already talked about, she, without apology, says she's beautiful. And when she says she's beautiful, what it does is it makes her strong and confident, and then her confidence becomes another form of beauty. So she is saying, I will not be defined by my past. I will not be defined by the world's view of beauty. I am beautiful because of what my beloved says about me. That's what Christ is inviting you to do. Rest in that beauty. Uh, one art, one uh, uh, commentator says this regarding personal application. He says, the description of the strong, self-determined female character presents an obvious challenge to all cultures, listen, including Christian cultures. Right? The description of a a strong, self-determined female is a challenge to Christian cultures. Why? Because Christian cultures, as other cultures, have sometimes, through the mystery of the Scripture, sought to disempower and pacify women. (laughs) The fact of the matter is that we find in the Song of Songs, and especially in chapter 1, a text that challenges all worldviews which, which insist that women are not fully persons in their own right, uh, that women must not take initiative, uh, that they must not make free choice about their lives and their loves, and particular that they should not display sexual desire and pursue a beloved man with a view to uh, uh, being with him. We have a text that insists that male-female relationships, when lived in fulfillment of God's purposes, are about mutuality, not dominance. About mutuality, not dominance. Oh, yeah, but Richard, you know, can, can, show me where the Bible is anything other than, you know, Jesus, the groom, seeking us. He seeks us. And here's my re- reaction. Of course he seeks us. 
but we seek him. Really? Where? Glad you asked. Luke 7, beautiful, you know, beautiful story in Luke 7. This woman who is defined by the world, and particularly the religious world, defined by the world as a quote-unquote sinner, uh, she busts into a party where Jesus is talking theology with some seminary students, and uh, you know she pours this perfume on his feet, begins kissing his feet, wiping his feet with her tears. She is over the top in love with Jesus, worshiping him. And the theologians say, ah, she's got it all wrong. If Jesus was really Messiah, he would know that she's a sinner and he wouldn't even allow her to touch him. And then Jesus says to the, to the religious folk, and I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time, you guys got it all wrong, completely wrong. The only one in the room worshiping is her, not you. You've confused theology with love, doctrine with love, service with love, defending your political turf with love. That's not love. And the, the one thing that God asks of you, clear back in Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And this is the one thing that God wants above everything else. What? Love God back. Love him. Seek him. Serve him. Ravish him. Worship him. This is your calling. And if Jesus is for us nothing more than an intellectual exercise, we are missing the point. Because it's that love relationship and us seeking <laughs> that transforms us. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord. And how, well, how, great, how do I seek the Lord? You seek the Lord by gathering just like this. You seek the Lord by, as Eric has invited us this morning, by actually singing, you seek the Lord. Rather than coolly, passively listening. That's how you seek the Lord. You seek the Lord by telling stories of what the Lord has done in your life. You seek the Lord by paying attention to the word, to creation, to fellowship. You seek the Lord by giving thanks to the Lord for good coffee, for health, for the measure of intimacy you do enjoy in your marriage. Though it's not perfect, you seek the Lord by giving thanks and paying attention and gathering. Seek the Lord. And then finally, uh, she moves from empty longing to doing the next thing. Let me, under, let me explain this. Uh, <laughs> She says, where are you? And then he says in verse 8, well, if you don't know, then go forth on the trail of the flock. In other words, here's the woman. Jesus, I want to know perfect intimacy with you today. Where are you? Tell me, and I'll go there. And here's what, here's what Jesus says. Hey, I know you want perfect intimacy, but uh, look, you don't know exactly where I am. At per so perfect intimacy is not available to you today. Here's what I'm telling you to do. Just keep walking on the path that you're on. Do the next thing. And in the context of doing the next thing, as a lover of Christ, you will come to me. You'll find me. Do the next thing. What's the next thing? Well, for some of you, it's caring for aging parents. For others, it's caring for a sick spouse. For another, it's getting up and going to a work, uh, you know, at a brand new job at Amazon, right? For another, it's waiting for a baby to come. For another, for, for another it's, it's continuing a career that you've been in for 30 years and you don't know yet if you should stay there for five more or, or retire. But look, we want this vast intimacy and here's Jesus and he says, look, learn to love me here and you'll get there. And that's what happens in this story. She does the next thing and in the context of doing the next thing, she finds him. And when she finds him, it's bliss. We, the next thing for us is this table. And it's significant this morning because in a world that seeks to define you by your failures or your successes, by your good looks or your not so much, <laughs> by your intellect or lack of, this table is an invitation 
for you to say, Jesus, I, by your grace, will not be defined by any of that. I will be defined by union with you. Come, eat, and no love that is better than wine. Let's pray. Father, would you meet us now at your table as we gather here? We pray that you would speak to each of our hearts regarding ways in which we've allowed ourselves to be conscripted by the world, our identity in you stolen by failures or successes, by good looks or shame. Would we, Father, have the grace to celebrate who you've made us to be? Because we are in you, we are loved, and your love is better than wine. Meet us here, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.